Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Dr. Edward J. Kantian, author of the book Treating Addiction Beyond the Pain, published in 2018 by Roman and Littlefield. Dr. Edward Kantian is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and past president of the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry. He is a distinguished scholar, psychiatrist, and psychoanalyst, specializing in addictions for more than 50 years. Ed, welcome to the show. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Eugenio. Ours too. And why don't we start by talking about what kind of doctor you are and how you came to specialize in addictions. Okay. Uh, I'm a a physician uh, who uh, trained uh, at, uh, started his education in medicine at Albany Medical College and then subsequently transferred to the Harvard Massachusetts Mental Health Center, a then very prominent training center in psychiatry uh, that was uh, more than anything uh, in a a solid psychodynamic, psychoanalytically oriented department, which is these days a rarity. And in that context, uh, I was exposed to some great teachers and great mentors And uh, so much of our training underscored that suffering uh, is at the heart of uh, psychiatric disorders. So it represented, I think, a solid background for me as I got into addiction, in which I'll elaborate on that. Uh, About uh, halfway through my training, I was offered uh, to take a position as the first chief resident in the then-fledgling young Harvard department of uh, psychiatry at the Cambridge uh, Hospital. Uh, It was a fledgling uh, department in that we were a division of medicine at first, but evolved into being our own separate department. That was in the late 1960s. Starting in the late 1960s, going into the 1970s, where at that time I had become chief of the uh, consultative liaison psychiatric services, Uh, we were hit at that time uh, with another epidemic, a heroin epidemic uh, of uh, obviously a different locale, a different population, which in in, in that sense, it was more people from an underprivileged minority groups uh, and uh, not the same as our current epidemic where heroin has cut, cut a much wider swath in society where few individuals from any background have escaped the tragedy and the tragic consequences of a dependency uh, on uh, heroin. In that context, uh, I made application for training in psychoanalysis uh, at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, and that's where I began and completed my training in psychoanalysis which spanned the period of 1967 to 1973. Uh, It was in that context of being uh, 
trained in psychoanalysis that we began uh, a treatment for the opiate dependency problem or depending on methadone maintenance as a means to stabilize people with their addictions. But right from the beginning, we built in a strong psychosocial component. And uh, we were uh, very proud of that as an ongoing part of our, our identity as an addiction treatment uh, program. Uh, so uh, I, I, as I say, I was in the middle of my psychoanalytic training uh, and my chief of psychiatry at that time, John Mack, uh, literally said, Ed, take notes uh, because you'll have a chance to apply modern psychoanalytic theory uh, to uh, addictive disorders. And literally I did take notes and I took heart. And I think in many ways, it became an extraordinary opportunity for me to st study and treat one addicted individual after another, taking in-depth uh, psychiatric, psychodynamic histories. Uh, and I began to learn a great deal about addiction. And I have often said, and have repeated to say, an awful lot, if not mostly what I've learned, I've learned from my patients. So maybe that's uh, enough for background, unless you have some more questions. Well, I'm aware of the likelihood that a lot of people listening now, especially people who work in the field of addictions, the last thing they might think of doing is to pursue psychoanalytic training, because it's my perception that in the current era, they're not, they're not easily seen as compatible. But in your story, you went into psychoanalytic training, it seems, as a way of enhancing your work with these patients and in fact found that to be the case. So what, as you see it, is the compatibility between psychodynamic, psychoanalytic ways of thinking and working and treatment for something like addiction? Well, let me say, um, uh, at the beginning, um, people come for treatment and it's an emergent situation. People are, their lives are out of control. There's chaos, there's a shattering of so much of their personal uh, experiences, family experiences, friends and the like. And there's a need immediately for stabilization. So contrary to an old psychodynamic psychoanalytic model, when you get to the roots of a person's troubles, uh, you will begin to alleviate their suffering and so forth. But the problem is there is so much suffering as a consequence of the addiction and the disorganization that that needs to be under control before you go searching and investigating as to what uh, was uh, driving the addiction. So I know there's a lot of prejudices about uh we now call it medication-assisted treatment. The old stereotype was we used to say you're just substituting one drug for another. And that's unfair, and it's an imbalanced perspective. Methadone maintenance and the subsequent development of things like buprenorphine and naltrexone have allowed us to provide stabilization and to get people in a place where they are sort of rid of enough of the disorganizing consequences of addiction to get to the roots of addiction. So uh, it's not a classic psychoanalytic approach or psychodynamic approach where you're searching for root causes to alleviate uh, the troubles, 
but you deal with stabilizing the troubles that have resulted from the addiction that gives you a chance to get a better hold of uh, what's going on in the person that has driven their addiction. So it's, it's, a, it's a little different, but it's, it's very likely that uh, I'm safe in saying that a psychodynamically trained or even a well-trained clinician can sit with people with some basic understandings of the vulnerabilities that are behind addiction and, and with stabilization can get to some of the root issues that make their addiction so compelling. So maybe that's a, a way to get into it. And it sounds like the stabilization is what um, allows for the conditions of psychotherapy to be in place, if I understand that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I wanted to have you tell us exactly what what is an addiction, because that word is used so, it's thrown around so loosely now. What, what defines an addiction? Well, for the most part, um, most addictions involve the development of physical uh, tolerance and physical dependency uh, on these uh, addictive drugs such that if you've been using reasonably heavily and regularly, you begin to develop a dependence on the drug such that if you stopped using the drug, you will begin to experience withdrawal symptoms uh, that are characteristic for the drug you've become uh, dependent on. And then the second part of an addiction, this is talking about the chemical aspects of it, you develop tolerance, which is you begin to need more and more to get the same effect. So it's the issue of developing physical dependence and the development of tolerance where using the drug causes you to depend more and more on the drug and thus worsening the problems of withdrawal from the physical dependence side of it. On the other hand, there's a more global overarching definition that was in a DSM-4. I'm not sure it's there anymore in DSM-5. That is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, DSM-5 coming out within the past two years, in which the characterization of addiction goes something like this. It's a condition in which you continue to use more and more of the drugs, and you continue to use it despite all of its adverse consequences. And that's probably as precise and pithy a way as I can sum it up. It's a consuming experience where it, it disrupts all aspects of your life, and you continue to do it despite all the negative consequences. So, so you're saying that the more, the most recent way of conceptualizing it involves an element of self-destructiveness that, that defies intuition. Well, yes. The only reason I hedge a little bit on that is there are some people dating back to early psychoanalytic theory that invoke self-destructive drives and motives. Uh, but if you're just talking about it as a description, I can go with that. But I do not think that self-destructive motives in its uh, origins or in the continuation of the addiction is what's at the heart of addiction. Indeed, the process is self-destructive, but that's not the intention of the person 
I don't think for the most part. Now, we do know there's a lot of suicidality and uh, suicide associated with addiction, but that's more often the case, a consequence of the total chaos, uh, seemingly unresolvable pain and loss of control where one begins to feel like the best way to escape all the horrors of the addiction uh, and the hopelessness that develops from the addiction is to turn oneself in, that is, to commit suicide. So so really, self, the self-destructiveness we see is a symptom of a deeper process that's going on. And in the book, I think the book centers around your idea about what's really at the root of addiction, and that's the self-medication hypothesis. Could you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, it's a subject that's uh, consumed my interest for the last 40 to 50 years. Just a little background. <clears throat> when I came to Cambridge Hospital and we started the methadone program, I had my negative uh, stereotypes, you could call it counter-transference, of addicted individuals as seemingly unfeeling, uncaring, not to be trusted individuals. But in the context of my doing a very thorough and careful psychiatric psychodynamic uh, evaluation of these people, I very quickly became aware of these were very, very troubled people, very troubled, and uh, the troubles in my experience and assessment was very much a part of leading them into addiction uh, and uh, so forth. And that uh, as I began to know these individuals, I began to uh, speculate. Uh, In my psychiatric training, which was only within less than a decade before I started that program, I finished my training in psychiatry in 1967. Uh, we had changed the language of the medications we used. We used to say in the 1950s, coming into the 1960s, we kind of referred to two classes of drugs. We talked about minor tranquilizers, referring for the then emerging benzodiazepines like Valium and Librium. And then we had the other classification, uh, 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 besides the minor tranquilizers, which I just mentioned, we spoke of the major tranquilizers, and that referred to what we now call antipsychotic drugs that we're using for treating uh, schizophrenia and psychosis, and to some extent, uh, out-of-control, very troubled, manic, bipolar patients. So uh, in that context, coming to Cambridge Hospital, I started to wonder... Opiates? What are opiates? They're painkillers. And were these folks just taking these drugs to quiet or eliminate painful feeling states? And then as I, maybe without even realizing it, I found myself drawing on my psychiatric training and saying, what is it that these people might be self-medicating? What I left out is when we changed the nomenclature, we we decided and began to live out in our practices that we designate their drugs not in this general tranquilizing reference, but they were either anti-anxiety agents, that is the benzodiazepines, like these days, Cerax and Clonazepam and the like, uh, to 
uh, drugs like the opiates uh, and likes that the stimulants. So I think I very early was being influenced by that psychiatric training, to wondering maybe there's something more specific that these folks are, are using these drugs for. And I quickly realized that in the case of the heroin-dependent people that were treating in the methadone program, they had struggled immensely throughout their lives with violent, aggressive, out-of-control feelings. And I think these feelings were not only threatening from within, but they threatened their relationships. And as I was taking their drug histories, I think based on that background and my training and my curiosity is what they were using these for, I very early learned to ask my patients, what did the drug do for you when you first used it? That's to get around the problems of dependency and tolerance, where you ultimately end up self-medicating withdrawal symptoms. And I began to be very impressed with the heroin-addicted people, as I indicated, that they were very, very much troubled with powerful, aggressive, violent feelings. And, and I learned that most of these individuals we're treating had grown up in very violent, disruptive environments. And in answer to my question, what did the drug do for you? They would say, doctor, I felt normal for the first time. I felt my anger quiet down. I wasn't as agitated. I wasn't irritable. And I mean, what does it mean when someone says to you, I felt normal for the first time? I think somewhere in their minds, they're projecting what, what does the rest of the world feel like and what's normal for them. Maybe I begin to feel more like a normal human being than a drug-craving individual. So that was kind of the beginning. And then I was beginning to read the literature. And there was a group, a couple of psychoanalysts in New York who uh, Weeder and Kaplan is their names, who uh, uh, coined this term drug of choice. And that began to influence my thinking. Some researchers at Columbia uh, began to do some experimentation. When they could do that more easily, they had permission to, uh, under laboratory conditions, to administer opiates and compared it to what uh, stimulants did similarly administrated the volunteers. And it came out, there was a strikingly di different, uh, a different uh, pattern for what these drugs did for people. And the people that were on the side of being agitated, disrupted, disrupting, aggressive, violently, they could characterize the calming, quieting effects of the opiates, whereas people who had more depressive, passive, characterologic makeups uh, responded and became more alive and activated by the stimulants. So that was the beginnings. And uh, to be perfectly frank, it was not my idea to point uh, the uh, hypothesis as the self-medication hypothesis. We, weren't, we, weren't, we were not doing this work uh, from 1970 on. 1970, and I've continued to do it since. And uh, in the early 1980s, the New York Academy of uh, Sciences put on a conference for inviting all the investigators, clinicians, biological psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and psychodynamic, psychoanalytic psychiatrists. 
And after a, a brief introductory session where two uh, Asian gentlemen talked about the history of opiates in Western Hemisphere, uh, I was asked to chair a section called the Self-Medication Hypothesis, Hypothesis of Addiction. And I was asked to give the lead-off uh, address on this. So uh, subsequently, I said, I think that's a pretty good idea. And I think I should write up my findings uh, with the uh, designation self-medication hypothesis of addictive disorders. And I did so, and it was published as a cover article, which is they refer to it as a special article in the American Journal of Psychiatry. So it got a little more attention. And at that time, psychodynamic psychoanalytic theory was still pretty much in the mainstream of psychiatric uh, treatment uh, theory and treatment. And uh, so it got a little more attention. So that's the background. But as I say, I began to work uh, with other patients in my private practice, uh, taking all comers. And it became clear to me that people who became alcohol dependent, although it's not like they didn't have problems with irritability, anger, and whatnot, it became more and more clear to me that such patients were very tense, uncomfortable pe people. They did not feel comfortable in their own skin. They were tense, anxious people. And when they took um, low to moderate doses of alcohol, they could allow themselves to relax a little bit more, to, to, to be more accepting of warmth coming from other people and accepting their own warmer, uh, fuzzy feelings uh, for themselves and other people. And that became uh, part two. And then part three was uh, no sooner had we be, uh, started to deal with and help to overcome the opiate epidemic of the 1960s and 70s, but there was the emerging cocaine epi epidemic in the 1980s. And I was either blessed or burdened to have the chance to study that population of people. And it became very clear to me that the people who found the stimulants the stimulants being, of course, uh, drugs like amphetamines, uh, legitimate and not so legitimate use of Adderall and Ritalin and the like. That's methylphenidate. I should use the generic terms. These were people who felt more alive and energized and activated. And it seemed to me a lot of these people were self-medicating depression or depressive feelings and the like. And then, of course, here's a good example of a theory can misguide. I used to say, is a stimulant is a stimulant. It stimulates, but I was missing something. I ran into the literature just by chance uh, studying something in the archives of general psychiatry, and there was an article about people uh, with grown-up forms of it wasn't called ADD then, it was called minimal brain dysfunction, showing that if you gave these patients what we would now call attention deficit hyperactivity disordered individuals, they had a paradoxical or calming effect to the stimulants. So I soon learned and I began to treat people who were self-medicating their ADHD uh, with uh, 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 legitimate and not legitimate sources of stimulants. So anyways, it began to fill out a picture. And that's the three main areas that I was seeing clinically and studying. 
uh, only recently have I had patients coming to me uh, for evaluation and treatment with uh, uh, dependency on uh, cannabis and uh, marijuana-like uh, drugs. And there, it's, it's a little more complicated, and we can get into that if you like. But uh, uh, marijuana has mixed... Go ahead. Yes. Well, I, 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 I actually wanted to ask you about, since we're talking about different drugs and about the self-medication hypothesis, it makes sense, it might make sense to a lot of our listeners that different drugs medicate different kinds of conditions or feeling states for different people. And the hypothesis seems to suggest that the environment that people grow up in has a lot to do with why they may be feeling certain ways that they then need to medicate. But I'm wondering if we assume that these kinds of difficult feeling states are somewhat universal such that everybody at some point is experiencing them, is there some other factor that explains why perhaps some people are more predisposed to develop this kind of um, level of dependence while others who maybe find themselves in similar situations simply don't develop that kind of dependence? That's an excellent question. It's the one I had to ask myself. I had to say, especially if you look at it this way, if you say, look, so often becoming addicted causes at least as much suffering if not more suffering, how can you argue that people are using these drugs to solve a problem when it creates a problem? And so what's your answer to that? Well, part of the answer is, uh, at least in good part, is it's in two parts. I think it's the more of it than the less of it. So that people who become addicted, I think, suffer in many ways in more complicated and enduring ways than non-addicted people. But you're right, there are some people, a lot of people, who suffer in that way and don't become addicted. Well, it, it was in the context of doing a liaison psychiatry that I began to, with my chair, uh, Dr. Mack, and making rounds, talking to people who had come in to the hospital or with, uh, you know, accidental injuries or a surgery that had been put off or poor problems in taking care of oneself. And we began to interview these people and we would ask them, you know, uh, look, it looks like you were into doing uh, some pretty risky things when you broke your arm. Uh, well, tell me about that. It's, I mean, I, I, if I were you and talking about what you were doing at the time, it makes me very nervous thinking about even getting into such such. And the patient would shrug and say, no, no, dog, I didn't have any such nervousness, and so forth. So just to keep it brief and not go on too much, I, I was then sitting at the same time with my heroin-dependent people, and I was thinking about, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, you don't hear it so much, how and why did they cross the needle barrier? Have you heard that term, going from snorting or uh, ingesting by mouth addictive drugs, they went into shooting themselves up intravenously. Have you heard of the needle barrier? You know, I haven't. It would be great for you to tell us what that means. I'm going to tell you what it means. I'm going to tell you by dint of how I began to get to the answer uh, to the question you just raised. How come a lot of people who have all these problems don't get into this? 
Well, um, I, I used my psychoanalytic, psychodynamic background in, in asking them about that. I said, you know, I, I want to talk to you about how you began to use drugs intravenously. Because, look, I'm a doctor. I'm trained to giving medicines with needles, taking blood uh, for diagnosing people. But the idea of sticking a needle in my own vein feels so uh, uncomfortable. The term I used in writing about it, it was a repugnant thought to me. And I'm saying, where was any of the worry, the fear, the sense of this is unusual or uh, unpleasant, if not uh, a repulsive thing to do? They say, no, Doc, I didn't give it much thought. No, I didn't have any reactions like you said where you'd you'd be nervous. to, And, and they would just elaborate. Well, taking it further, besides treating these patients in the methadone program, in my part-time practice, I was taking all comers, including uh, profess- professional people, physicians, and the like. I began to notice a parallel. These folks got into a lot of trouble because they didn't worry and fuss about a lot of things. They didn't mm-hmm. worry as much as they should have with the addictive substances they had gotten into. They didn't worry as much about things like paying their insurance premiums on time, registration, registering their certificates to practice or to do whatever they did as professionals. And they were getting screwed up in all aspects of their life. And Dr. Mack and I, said there's something going on here. These people have disordered survival instincts. But it turns out as we studied it, looked at the literature, things like this, it's not an instinct at all. It's a, it's an ego capacity, and we called it an ego capacity for self-care. Uh, now, I should step back again. The questions you raised about uh, the pain and self-medication factors, it forced me to adopt a more overarching idea of addiction as a self-regulation disorder. And there are four biggies in that, that I, and it's it's really drawing on affect theory, drawing on, that is theory of feeling life, theories about self-esteem and sense of self, interpersonal relations issues. And then this fourth area that we call the capacity for self-care. And we said that the, the, the first three, in their own, each in their own ways and in particular, have a lot of painful feelings associated with it. That fourth area of self-care malignantly plays into that in that they begin to have a discovery experimenting with drugs and taking chances that the drugs uh, are captivating. As I say, they have a discovery, and and then all is overridden uh, for the having the, having had the discovery. But a major factor that permitted them to go beyond where most people would go with their pain. They were telling me about their inability, well, their their problems with thinking and feeling differently uh, about risky and dangerous behavior. Does that help? To, to explain the difference between people who suffer and don't get addicted and people who suffer and do get addicted. Absolutely. And I am aware that in the book, you bring up another factor that can help us 
understand addictions, and that's attachment issues. Can you talk about how those are involved in addiction? Let me give you an embarrassing aside. In 19, 2012, I received a wonderful letter from Sir Richard Bowlby, uh, the son of uh, Sir Jonathan Bowlby. And uh, uh, for our listeners who don't know, uh, he's one of the um, one of the people who really introduced the concept of attachment. Absolutely, right? I, I'm glad you reminded me. Bowlby was the originator of attachment theory, and with a couple of research associated associated with him, developed some very rich ideas about problematic attachments that are in the earliest phase that develop in earliest phases of growing up and play out in adult life. And then subsequently, a number of people have taken up those ideas who are also working with addictions and have said what what Bowlby discovered about attachment problems being at the root of so much psychopathology, pathology, it clearly is very much at the root of so much uh, that leads people in addictions. Someone so eloquently said, people over time begin to substitute the inanimate attachment to opiates and other drugs and addictive behaviors in place of ordinary human attachments. And it's because early in their life and along the way, uh, their ordinary, would-be ordinary human attachments have failed them. And they begin to draw upon uh, the comfort they get from the drugs rather than the comfort they might otherwise find uh, in the uh, uh, the comfort that they find in addictive drugs where they can't find them or trust them in human relationships. Uh, and uh, a distinguished psychologist in Atlanta, Philip Flores, has written extensively about this. Uh, here in New England, we have a uh, uh, great psychoanalyst, Karen Wallant, uh, who's written about the attachment problems, and uh, some of the British people, uh, who I won't elaborate on, have also picked up on attachment issues being very, very much a part of the dynamics or attachment dysfunction and disorders that cert- set up certain people uh, to be more uh, prone to attaching to addictive behaviors and addictive substances. And thank you for reminding me of that. So you said something interesting that I want to pick up on, that people who become addicted sometimes have attachment issues such as they they don't have certain, they, re, they re, use a substance to replace that which they don't have in human connection, or you said that they don't trust that they don't trust certain human connections. What did you mean by that? It's both. And uh, I think that they don't trust is evident in that uh, you could say, I'm not sure people literally say this, but I suspect with some patients they do. How can I trust this person who's saying they want to help me Mm. or can help me when my mother should have done that job or my father should have been more sensitive and helpful? So there is a distrust, I think, But it's like a stranger being in a strange land. Uh, They have this problem. They know not. That is this problem being their dysfunctional attachments, their inability to attach. And they have it and they know not 
that they have attachment problems, but it gets played out in their day-to-day lives, in their relationships, their poor relationships, absent human relationships, and they have the discovery that the most trustworthy source of comfort for them is their addictive behaviors and the addictive substances. So what do you think then about rehabilitation programs or about 12-step programs? At times these days, I get a little bit cynical that rehabilitation programs have become a growing industry in which it works more like a business than a deeply caring, committed, uh, caring uh, uh, treatment uh, program. Uh, But having said that, uh, I think the rehab programs uh, immediately remove people from uh, the offending agents. If they're rehab programs that are structured to foster uh, better connections with therapists, better connections with each other in their 12-step meetings, in their psychotherapeutic group meetings, and the like. And I think more and more, if they are up to, to date and consistent with the times they live in, they employ the stabilizing influences of medication-assisted treatments, such as methadone, although in rehab, uh, they can't so readily do that because most methadone programs are government-monitored programs. But the establishment and development, development and establishment of buprenorphine as a stabilizing agent and combining that with the psychosocial treatments, I think rehab programs have a tremendous uh, opportunity to provide at the beginning stabilization and then all the therapeutic benefits of 12-step programs, uh, psychotherapeutic programs, individual and group. And, uh, you know, and then uh, we have had the uh, advantage of alternative therapies, dialectical behavior therapy, motivational interviewing, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And those treatments applied to accepting populations with people who have the specific problems that those newer treatments uh, uh, respond to, uh, there's so much more. I have a colleague, um, a very distinguished colleague, uh, Dr. John Remmer. He's he's now about to be the past president of the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry. He has boldly stated in a number of contexts, he considers it malpractice not to be adopting the medication-assisted treatments. And I would say that is also a statement that should be addressed to rehabilitative facilities. Because if you think about it, if you don't do that in rehab, the patient gets stabilized, they begin to feel better, they've made connections to helping others, whether it's the professionals or the peer groups that they experience. Uh, In the confinement of 30 to 60 days, their tolerance drops. They leave the uh, the rehab facility. A major stressor and or craving just comes in. The person takes an opiate and they overdose and more often than not tragically die. It's because they weren't guided through the phase of uh, post-rehab ongoing care in which you build in the safety factor uh, with medications such as methadone 
or buprenorphine or now uh, naltrexone uh, as a way of stabilizing and dealing with their problems of craving and relapse. So I'm wondering then in 12-step programs, for instance, which really don't involve... I'm sorry, what kind of... I'm sorry, what kind of programs? I'm still thinking about 12-step programs specifically because oftentimes they don't really involve... In fact, I think by definition, they don't involve any medical or mental health professionals. They are 100% uh, run by members and peers. And some people go to 12-step programs and say that the program saved their lives and helped them to stay sober for many, many years. And as a psychoanalyst and as a psychiatrist, I'm wondering how you understand the effectiveness of those programs for, for such people. Well, if, if we say that there's something to my ideas about addiction as a self-regulation problem, which is it involves disordered feeling life, it involves disordered sense of self, self-esteem issues. It, uh, it involves disordered, troublesome relationship issues. And it involves disordered self-care. Just think about what happens in uh, self-help groups at their best. And it's fair to say there's a spectrum. Uh, and by the way, uh, even the 12-step programs, many of them are becoming much more flexible about what else is needed. Well, my God, you, you, you go into AA and you've grown up in an environment where, as my patients, we didn't do feelings in my family. We didn't talk about feelings. People go to the AA meetings and begin to listen to the stories that involve people not being connected to their feelings, people being overwhelmed with their feelings, people not being able to put their feelings, knowing their feelings, putting their words into feelings, and they go to a program where that is just automatically happening day by day, week by week, on a continuous basis. You go to an AA meeting and you're feeling pretty crappy about yourself. You feel like a low life, and you introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Ed, and I'm an addict. And they say, hello, Ed, welcome. They don't say to me, you piece of no good nothing, you awful person. They welcome you. They don't judge you. And they let you tell your story. And you begin to tell your story, and you're not judged. And you walk out of it, maybe not the first meeting, but maybe to some extent the first meeting. They say, hey, they accepted me. In fact, in a couple of cases, it looked like some people were looking and smiling, and they knew what I was talking. I didn't feel so bad. So it gets to the... Uh, self-respect, sense of self issues. And then the relationships are automatically already being taken care of. They talk about the brotherhood, but what the brotherhood refers to is an environment of caring others where it's uh, safe to begin to figure out how to relate where, as one of my patients said, otherwise you're a born-again isolationist. So it helps you to overcome that avoidant, withdrawn, inability to connect self. And so it's on that third count. And then on the fourth count of self-care, for the first time, they're hearing people doing tremendously uh, risky, dangerous things. And the people interacting and reacting, although I know there's no crosstalk, people hear the story and they tell parallel stories. People begin to see that there was something screwed up in their lives, that they didn't feel their way through situations. They didn't bring their best thinking. 
They didn't make cause-consequence relationships, when in fact that's also just naturally going on in those 12-step programs. So I would just sum it up by saying, although 12-step programs are not psychotherapy per se, they clearly are psychotherapeutic at getting to what addictive individuals suffer with and are saddled with that makes them so vulnerable to addiction. So Edward, almost out of time, it's been great talking to you about this and about your book. Before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? <laughs> I'm working on a little bit of downtime, <laughs> uh, and I'm taking it a little easy. Uh, but I continue to read and read in my field. Uh, I'm continuing to do some lecturing, not as much as I used to. And I, I am thinking about maybe possibly another book. Uh, I, I had a uh, I had a title going, and then I ran out of steam. But I might get back to it, you know. <laughs> Let me see if I can pull it out. Yeah, addiction, matters of the brain and the heart. What is addiction really about? But maybe for a lay audience. So I'm thinking about it. And uh, and I've all, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Please go ahead. I mean, really all I was going to say was that I would hope when, if you do write the book that you will uh, come on the show again and talk about it, but we're also eager to hear what else you're working on. Certainly, certainly. And uh, I, I would all, always just, I will sum it up with the way I began the book and the way I concluded it. Addiction is not about uh, pleasure-seeking and self-destructive met- uh, motives. Suffering, human psychological pain and distress and unhappiness is at the root of addictive disorders. And if we don't get at those roots, uh, we we miss a lot that continues to drive addictive behavior. So it's a, it's a theme that has made a lot of sense to me. And uh, nothing in the last 15, 20 years have changed my mind about that uh, in a context of doing this for now close to 50 years. So I, I appreciate your interest in my book. And I hope your readers will find the book interesting. Certainly. I've been speaking to Dr. Edward Kentian, and the book again is called Treating Addiction Beyond the Pain. Ed, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to, and I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact. Until next time, have a great week.